Hi everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Creator Talks. I am your host, Christopher Calloway. On this episode, I'm going to bring you a very special interview. This is from HeroesCon in Charlotte, North Carolina, the other week. On Friday, June 16th, I interviewed Jim Shooter. Now, Jim Shooter, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, started writing comics at the age of 13. He wrote and drew stories featuring the Legion of Superheroes for DC Comics. And then later in life, he went on to work for Marvel Comics and eventually rose to editor-in-chief from 1978 to 1987. After Marvel Comics, he formed Valiant Entertainment with such characters as Magnus Robot Fighter, Solar, Man of the Atom, and Turok from Gold Key Comics, and original new characters such as Exo Manowar, Bloodshot, The Eternal Warrior, and Harbinger. After Valiant Comics, he went on to form Defiant Comics, after that, Broadway Comics, and he came back in around 2010 for Dark Horse, writing Solar Man of the Atom, Turok, Magnus Robot Fighter, and The Mighty Samson. And I found out from Jim that he is working on something that's going to be published by Image Comics late this year or early next year, so that was big, exciting news for me. For more interviews like this from other creators, writers, artists, don't forget to subscribe to Creator Talks through iTunes, Google Play, you can listen through SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Now before my interview at Heroes Con, I want to give you a little background on Jim Shooter and how I finally had a chance to meet him and do this interview. I was really a fan of Valiant comic books back in the early 90s and was so excited to read those comic books each week. I really looked forward to it, and I was crushed when I found out that Jim Shooter was gone from Valiant, uh, forced out by his partners. Bob Layton had taken over as editor-in-chief, and I still read the comics, and I still look forward to them, but something was missing. The stories weren't quite the same. And I was really excited to find out in about, oh, a year that Jim Shooter was founding a new comic book company of his own, Defying Comics. Now, some people didn't like that, said some nasty things about Jim, and so I came to his defense. Not that he needed it, but I wanted to put it in my two cents. And I wrote a letter that was published in Comic Buyer's Guide in issue number 1053. I don't think I have that issue anymore. But uh, it came to my attention a few weeks later in the mail, a letter from their sales and marketing manager, Jay Clark Smith. And it says, Dear Chris, on behalf of Jim Shooter and all of us here at Defiant, thanks so much for writing the kind letter that appeared in the current Comic Buyer's Guide 1053 on 121.94. As you mentioned in your letter, Defiant has been suffering the slings and arrows of outraged fans and retailers, so we're generally honored and grateful when someone like you sticks up for us. Please accept this enclosed poster as a token of our heartfelt appreciation. Thanks again, Chris. Fans like you make all our hard work worthwhile. Best regards, Jay Clark Smith. P.S. I thought you might also enjoy a copy of Defiant Genesis. Enjoy! And I most certainly did, and I still have the comic and poster right here in front of me. And then, that came to me on January 11, 1994. And I wrote to Comic Buyer's Guide because, well, there really wasn't much of an internet yet, and that's how people got most of the news about comic books. It was either Wizard Magazine or Comic Buyer's Guide. And... Several months later, it wasn't until September, nine months later, I got a letter in the mail from Defiant, September 14, 1993. Dear Chris, thanks for the nice letter of early April. I lost it for a while. Sorry. Anyway, your kind words are appreciated. At last. Defiantly, Shooter. 
Jim Shooter. I was floored. I couldn't believe nine months later, Jim sent me this letter. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, he just took him a little bit of time to write this real short note. But just the fact that he did that, it, it stuck with me all those years. And uh, when I was traveling on business up in New York City, I decided, you know, I think I'll stop into the Defiant offices. So I contacted Jay Clark Smith and said, hey, I'll be in the area. Mind if I come in for a tour? And he's like, sure, absolutely. So I went in, met the receptionist. They were tied up at the moment. And so they said I could wait out on the balcony, which I did. And I was looking at the Empire State Building. It was at night, beautiful out, nice breeze. And I was wearing my long coat. And I came back in, and the receptionist said, Wow, you look just like Superman standing there with your cape blowing in the wind, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and I met Jay Clark Smith, and he showed me around. I met some of the artists who were working there, some of the colorists, actually, who were coloring pages. They were working out of this little closet in the Defiant office. And uh, I never had a chance to meet Jim in person because when he was in the office, I was still out on the balcony at that time, and I saw everyone gather around him. He kind of had a quick huddle with the staff. And he's huge. He's a big guy over six foot tall, and everyone kind of met him at about chest level. So I saw them all gather around. Jim kind of gave him some instructions, and they all scattered back to their work. And that was it. So I never had a chance to see him in person. And then when he started writing Solar and Magnus and The Mighty Samson for Dark Horse Comics in around 2010, and I was planning to see him in New York City at a signing, a book signing, for The Mighty Samson at a comic book store. And unfortunately, there was a family matter that came up, and I wasn't able to go. I thought, well, I guess I'll catch him next time. But Jim wasn't doing many appearances. Most of the time he made appearances, it was usually at Mile High Comics out in Colorado. And that was a bit of a stretch for me to get out there. And so when he came to the Greater Philadelphia Comic Con this year, I finally had a chance to meet him in person after like over 20 years. And I told him the story about the receptionist and the comment about the Superman appearance standing outside with the wind. And he thought that was really funny. And uh, just told him, thank you. I showed him the letters. I said, thank you so much. I don't want you to sign anything. I already have something signed, something better than a book, a letter from you. So I just wanted to show them to you and thank you in person. I wasn't going to do an interview there at the con. I prefer to do those over the phone just because there's so much noise and situations going on at cons and all the commotion and people want to get their books signed. I didn't want to be disruptive and also wanted a more controlled environment so that the sound is better. And uh, we talked about doing a phone conversation and a couple months went by and we just couldn't sync up. And then I saw Jim was going to be appearing at Heroes Con in North Carolina and I said, well, I would really like to go and here's another reason to go. So I went down and I saw Jim on the floor Friday and came by and I said, you know, I'd like to interview. And he said, yeah, sure, have a seat right here. And I was like, well, I'll come back. I'll let you get situated because you just opened up and you have some folks here standing in line to get their book signed. So uh, I don't want to be disruptive. I'll come back. And uh, I came back and there was a line the whole time he was signing uh, that we had our conversation. It did not stop. And it was really great to see because I haven't seen Jim really do anything in comics for a while. Um, and in our conversation, I found out he is working on something right now, which is very exciting. But I hadn't seen much of him, and it was great to see all these fans come out, really appreciative of his work, having their books signed, having a conversation with him. And really, he just seemed very, very pleased and very, very humbled that all these folks were out to say, thank you for all of your work, and hope to see more. And it looks like we will, which is great news. So I'm going to get to our conversation now. Um, now, there were some issues I had when I was trying to record this. I had a problem with the external mics and uh, equipment being bumped because there was a lot of people there. And I don't, that's why I don't usually like to do them at cons. But everything worked out just fine. Everything is clear enough to hear. 
you can definitely hear Jim. He's got a nice booming voice, <laughs> so no problem there. It's a very uh, listenable podcast. So I hope you enjoy the interview. And if you want to see it on YouTube, it is also available on my YouTube channel where I have the video of us talking. And it's not just you know talking heads, two people talking. I also have added some media to it, some vintage photographs of the period that he's talking about as well as comic book and magazine covers that he's referencing. So it's a, it's a nice multimedia-type presentation. It's not just two people talking on a con floor. Uh, I try to do a little more with it, as I always do. So if you have a chance to check it out on my YouTube channel, uh, I will tweet that out and put it on Facebook, at Creator Talks Pod. So follow me there so you can follow the link, and you can also watch this. It's a good 45-minute conversation, so uh, no, don't watch this on your iPhone or your tablet, maybe that might be okay, but you might want to sit in front of your, your Mac or your computer. Uh, it's more watchable that way. I think you'll appreciate it more. But hey, either way, I'm, I'm happy if you have a chance to check out the video, put a lot of work into it, and I'd love to have your feedback. But now that you're here for the podcast, you can do this while you're multitasking, and it's really a great conversation. I don't rehash a lot of old history. Uh, Jim has covered a lot of these topics before about the origin of Secret Wars, working at DC Comics at a young age. Um, what I get into mainly is being editor-in-chief at Marvel and how he guided the writers and artists in the art of storytelling. Also, as with some of the writers and artists at Valiant, also talked a bit about uh, his upcoming work that he's uh, planning to do. A little bit about that because a lot of it's still in the formation stage, but I tried to go in areas where it hasn't been tread very much. So hopefully you'll learn some more things about Jim Shooter and his influence on the writers and artists back in the early days of Marvel, back in the late 70s and early 80s, and his influence on the writers and artists at Valiant Comics. So that's where most of the focus is. And I pick out a few titles here and there that we talk about in a little more depth. So uh, here it is, my interview with Jim Shooter, Heroes Comic Con, Friday, June 16th, 2017. Enjoy. Last time I saw you, you were up at the Greater Philadelphia Comic Con, and you talked about storytelling, right. storytelling technique. Yes. Using the Little Miss Muffet as the as the example <laughs> of how to tell a good story. No, with, with it, it's not an example. It's it's a structure. It's a structure. It's, it's a it's a memory device to help yes. you remember the elements of a story, and it's it's basically, you know, basically I took what Aristotle came up with uh, 300 years before the birth of Christ and what Horace refined shortly after the birth of Christ and just put it in a little, use that little poem to remind people of. of of the essential elements of a story. It's just a brick. It's what you build with. You could build an outhouse or you can build the Taj Mahal, you know. <laughs> but uh, at least that way you can remember the, the, the bits and, and pieces and then I explain what the bits and pieces are. And uh, Little Miss Muppet is a lousy story, but you know, it'll help you remember what you what you need to do. And as far as the character having some challenge and they change and they're different from how they were at the beginning of the story, that being some of the key components, doesn't have to be an action story, but there has to be some kind of change. The writers that you worked with at Marvel yeah. as editor-in-chief, right. I wanted to just throw some names out and you can tell me about their writing style and how they fit that structure, that building block, using all the essential elements. Uh, like, for example, Chris Claremont as well, a writer. Well, Chris is a great writer. I wrote his introduction to the Hall of Fame. I mean, and I compared him to Babe Ruth. He didn't create the X-Men, but he built the house. <laughs> you know? And uh, Chris, uh, he was not... At, at first, he, he was... Uh, I don't know. He, he wasn't really comfortable uh, entirely with uh, what I was asking him to do. But uh, Louise Simonson and Anna Senti 
you know helped uh, Chris uh, in some ways. It's not easy to do. It's 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 you know even with the memory device, there's still so many moving parts in a story. And Chris was just masterful at almost everything. And uh, but every once in a while, you know, uh, he needed a, a fresh pair of eyes to say, "Hey, what about this?" I tell you something about Chris. He I, I have total respect for him because he he wouldn't he didn't want you to fix it. If you he used to tell me when I was editing his scripts before I became editor in chief. I'd get a script for him, and I saw so I'd be going through it, and he'd say, "Don't make any marks on it, or if you do, just make a little pencil X in the margin, and then I'll come in and you tell me what's wrong, and I'll fix it." And so, like, he'd come in and he'd be looking through a script, and he'd say, well, "What's this?" And I'd say, "Well, it might be nice to mention the character's name somewhere." And he's like, "Ah," and he'd run and he'd find a typewriter somewhere, and he'd retype the whole page because he wanted his scripts to be perfect. clean and okay. perfect, and. Uh, you know, for little things like that. So, but I mean, you know, like everybody needs that. Everybody needs somebody. Even Archie Goodwin, who was genius. I mean, he, once in a while, he'd forget something, or, or I'd say, "Hey, Arch, shouldn't this be?" And he'd go, "Oh, yeah, yeah." Um, but anyway, so so you know, that, that's just a good thing. But but most of the guys, they they understood what I was saying, and they started uh, uh, giving more structure. I think a lot of I think people slipped into sort of that what they called a soap opera before I got there. Which was kind of never-ending stories that went nowhere, you know. I mean, they they sort of have little resolutions here and there of stuff, but but to, everything just sort of became this endless, you know, uh, never-ending tale. And so I tried to get them to think: No, people buy a unit of entertainment, one unit. There better be a story in here, you know, because that's what people want. And. Um, you know, it, it, it took a while, but I, I got him up to speed, and I, I think it helped because our sales took off. Of course, it didn't sure hurt did. that we had guys like Walt Simonson and, you know, Wilson Kevich and, and David Michelini. You know, we had a lot of great guys. Absolutely. You know, and the more great guys we got, the better stuff got. And and I think that uh, the the direction I provided uh, was useful to them. You know, they 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 that gave them something to, uh, I don't know, it, it helped them think of it, you know, to, to, to structure it. Architecture. It's architecture as well as art. And that's that's uh, that's like maybe one of my contributions, I guess, is to try to get everybody thinking that way. You know, I mean, nobody had to get Archie to think that way right. or Louise. I mean, you know, they already knew. Uh, Larry Hama. And nobody had to tell him anything. But some of the new guys really needed a little nudge in that direction. Yeah. Well, Chris Claremont helped to turn Power Man into Power Man Iron Fist, kind of giving that a little boost. And then later, Joe Duffy came on and began writing the book. Tell me a bit about Joe's writing and how she worked on the book. Well, I think the best thing that happened to Joe is she started out as an assistant editor and did fine. And uh, But then when we started the Epic line, uh, uh, I, t I told Archie, I said, if you want to, you know, steal an assistant editor from one of the other, you know, places, I think it, it's prestigious. It's an honor to work with the epic, the creator-owned stuff. So you know, the, the, I would consider that a reward for them, and, and you know, so fine. So instead of trying to get a person from the outside, he uh, he, he he chose uh, Mary Jo Duffy, and uh, like I said, she'd been she'd been doing really well before, but working with Archie, you know, and learning from him, she really kind of. She did. She did. Uh, started doing some really great stuff. I think she did Star Wars, for instance. Yes. And some other things. And uh, uh, she really. Uh, I think Archie was was good. He he was one of those people who 
uh, maybe I'm a little too loud and obnoxious. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Come maybe I, I, I'm a little too, like, <laughs> I, you know, bombastic when I'm te teaching stuff. But Archie, in his subtle way, in his nice, nice, even-toned way, would, you know, would get across the same essential stuff that I was trying to get people to do. And, uh, uh, you know, the, in his kinder, gentler way, he, he, uh, he helped her a great deal, I believe. And, uh, and and she was she's a brilliant uh, lady and she picked up on it and she learned and you know got dangerous let's say, let's face it <laughs> one of the books that you wrote that I really enjoyed of the new universe was Starbrand right and John Romita Jr. did the uh, yeah. the artwork for that so um, tell me about putting that together when the decision was made I'm going to create a new universe a new offshoot of the Marvel universe a completely separate universe yeah well. There were the the thing is, when a couple of years before Marvel's 25th anniversary was coming up, uh, we had a, a, a meeting. All the executive staff had a meet, vice presidents had a meeting, and the president, and uh, to, to talk about what are we going to do about our 25th anniversary, and some things were discussed and proposed, and I, I suggested I said, well, if, if it's if it's to celebrate the creation of a universe, what about we create another one? You know the new universe and everybody liked that and so i had a very big budget to do development uh i think a quarter million dollars just to do development and i had uh, a promotion budget and and i had uh, a, a budget to pay people guaranteed royalties because how are you going to get a guy to take a, to leave like thor and come and work on something new that's risky who knows if right. it's going to be a hit or not and uh uh, if you can't sort of guarantee them that they're going to not lose any income while they try it. So um, I had guaranteed royalties. I had, you know, lots of uh, other uh, things. And, uh, and then at that point, um, the Cadence Board of Directors uh, took the company private. So the Marvel and its parent company, Cadence Industries, was owned by six guys. And Marvel was doing really, really well. And so these six guys who owned us decided to cash in. And they wanted to sell the company. And the minute you're trying to sell a company, you don't want to invest anymore. Right. Yeah. And so the president of the company called me up to his office and he said, um, he said, this budget you have, he says, uh, how much of it have you spent? And I, I said, I don't know, some tens of thousands of dollars. And he said, don't spend anymore. He said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spend another nickel on this. And I said, well, you mean you don't want us to do it? He said, oh, no, you just have to do it on staff. Do it, do it on the cheap. So no guaranteed royalties, none, none of that stuff that I needed to get guys like Walt Simonson. You know. And uh, so basically, if you look at the credits on the New Universe books, it's me, Archie Goodwin, and a bunch of assistant editors, basically anyone who would work volunteer for free just to, to help me you know and uh, so uh, Archie was a champion he was wonderful and the assistant editor guys they did pretty good but mostly if you look most of the artists we had were either brand new some of them turned out to be really great like uh, Mark Texiera was you know was pretty new and and there was uh, Will Sportaccio who was pretty new and um, so some of those guys grew up to be stars, but, you know but in the meantime, they were that, at that point, they were pretty new. Right. And, um, and then a lot of other art was done, basically, I'm sorry to say, by 
guys who couldn't get any other work. <laughs> you know, so so uh, it was not an ideal circumstance. However, with uh, Starbrand, which is the book I was writing, uh, I didn't have an artist for it yet, and. Uh, uh, into my office comes John Romita Jr. He says, I want to draw your book. He says, I'm going to give up, I don't know what, Iron Man or something. And I said, you're crazy. You know, you, this might, this is probably going to fail because they took away all of our support. And what are we going to do? I said, why would you give up something that was really doing well and you're making good money on to come and, you know, do that? He said, I want to do your book. You know, sort of as a favor to me. I said, oh, you're crazy, but all right. Later that same day, Al Williamson called me, and uh, he said, uh, uh, "Hey, I hear Jr. is drawing your book. I want to ink it." And I said, "You guys are out of your minds, <laughs> you know." But uh, being out of their minds um, or not, they they did it, and so at least on uh, Starbrand, we had really great art. Yes, he did. And uh, it was, uh, 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 you know, that that was good, and and. And you know, and Archie wrote a, a couple issues, and so we had great writing on, on a couple issues, and uh, so there were some good things about it. There were some some good things, good things that came out of it, but uh, we were we were sort of dead from the get go, basically. So when you yeah. jumping forward to Valley, when you started that again, you were kind of scrapping out there, trying to get by with uh, the best you had. Well, yeah, I mean, we started Valiant, and that was at the time when uh, the Image Comics were starting also, and, and, yes. and, um, and Marvel was doing really well, and Marvel was doing things like uh, New Spider-Man number one, New X-Force, X-Factor, whatever, right. and uh, okay, so we didn't have the money to compete with Marvel for artists, and we certainly didn't have the money to compete with Image for artists, you know, later. Um, we actually helped Image get started, because because we had already started Valiant, and then the Image guys um, uh, started their their company, and uh, I remember I got a call from one of them. I can't remember which one. He said, "Hey, hey, Jim, can you explain to us how to get lettering done? Because they, they they were artists. They didn't know how, the whole production thing." And so I said, "Yeah." So I told them, you know, who they should call and and everything. And then uh, they asked all these other questions. I said, "Let me put my production manager on the phone." And I got J.J. Jackson to explain to them what they needed to do. We introduced them to printers and separators and so forth. It was, uh, you know, like it was, it was funny getting them going. But then when they, once they were gone, they're selling millions of copies. So um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, all right. But uh, so here we are. We don't have uh, uh, any money to compete with these guys. So some of the people we were using were just right out of the Cubert school, mm -hmm. you know. When I'll say this for the Cubies, they they might not have been fully formed as artists yet, but man, Joe taught them to be professional. Yes, he does. I asked I him to some of the students. Yes. Yeah, I oh. asked them to do something. They said yes, sir, and they did what I told them. I had to show them which end of the brush to hold sometime. <laughs> But uh, at any rate, uh, they took you know, it seriously as a profession. Yeah, they, they were really, yeah. you know, the, he taught them that for sure. And uh, so anyway, but then we got lucky. First of all, there was Don Perlin, uh, who uh, he was at Marvel, and after I left, he just hated the place. He just we we'd go out to lunch or whatever, and he said, "You got to get me out of here. You, I, I hate this place. It's not fun anymore." And uh, and so uh, I'd say, Don, what are you, sixty some? I said, you know, you're working in a place where you've got retirement benefits, you know, all this stuff like that. You want to come and work for a fragile startup that may not may not make it, 
And he said, I don't care. I don't like this place anymore. I want to be with you. I said, great. All right, fine. I give in. I cave in. So Don comes to work for us, and that was good. Uh, Bob Layton, uh, he uh, uh, had uh, uh, somehow is he, he was not welcome at DC Comics. Marvel, when his contract uh, terminated, they said, uh, or when his contract came to the end, they said, we're not going to renew it and we don't have any work for you. So he had no place else to go. So he came to start working for me as an anchor. And uh, uh, later, interesting, I first, when I, Dawn first came, I thought he would kind of run the bullpen, you know, and Bob was going to ink. And what happens, they kind of organically change places. I, no one said it. I mean, it was not a command for me. It was like, before you know it, Bob, who turned out to be very good at running the, the you know, the, the lettering, inking, pay stuff people, uh, he was doing most of that and inking. And Don was helping the young artists a lot, but he mostly was the guy sitting at the desk, you know, creating art. Right. So they kind of just sort of shifted positions, and that was, I didn't care, it's like, or, organically it got done, so it was fine. So anyway, uh, uh, we, so we got lucky with, with those two guys, and then when Bob was there, we were looking for an artist, and both of us knew Barry Windsor Smith, he also had a problem, he had had arguments with Marvel and some arguments with DC, and he kind of had no place else to go, and when we called him, he, he came down and decided, to, you know, he could, he could work for us. Uh, and then we had a, a miracle from God, I guess. It was uh, David Lapham, who, who was uh, a young guy, maybe 19, lived down in Tom's River, New Jersey, and he would send us samples all the time. And, you know, I, I always responded to samples, and Don Perlin was good about it, too. He would write him little notes, you know, work on this, work on that. And every week we'd get a new batch of samples, and every week he did what we told him. You know, he got better and better. And so finally, I made him jump through so many hoops. I, I thought, I, I got to hire this guy. You know, <laughs> I can't, I can't not hire him. You know, and so I, he wasn't that good yet. And I said, uh, Look, you're gonna have to come to the office every day so we can look over your shoulder while you do this. Two and a half hour commute from Tom's River to New York, each way, every day. Yes. Wow. He said okay, and sure enough, he showed up. And um, that first day was the worst day of his life, I think, because. Of course, you're working freelance, so you only get paid for what you successfully complete. And that day, neither Don nor I or anyone else had any time to work with him. So here he is, sitting there at the drawing board, trying to work from this script. And the only thing he heard from me all day is I'd be walking by and I'd say, "Oh, that's all wrong. You know, uh, start <laughs> over, start over." And uh, so you know, I, 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 you know, I, the same with Don. Perlin was flying around there, and he just didn't have time. And so he'd say, oh, no, 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 you got to do this, you know. But he just got no input. So at the end of the day, he had completed nothing. He had earned zero. Oh, man. And he kind of went out of there looking really sad. And, and I thought, well, that's it. We'll never see him again. The next day, he shows up. And I thought, well, that kid just showed me something. So I'm, we're not going to let him down. He's committed. We're not going to let him down this time. <laughs> so I found time. I made time. And, and the, uh, the first couple panels... I, I laid them out for him, and I explained why. I said, this is what we're doing, and this is why we do it. And then after, I don't know, a page or so uh, of stuff that I laid out, he, uh, he said, let me try. He's like, he's listening to me, and he's like learning, and he said, he's let me try. I said, all right, fine. So he tried laying them out, and then he would bring them over and show it to me. And I said, yeah, that's good, you know, okay. <laughs> or move this here or something like that. So anyway, by the end of that day, 
He had done like a page and a half. Okay. And I don't know, it was a couple hundred bucks, you know, uh, whatever, several hundred dollars of work. So uh, I said, well, congratulations, you have made, you know, $225 today. You can make a living doing this. And uh, he walked out very pleased that day. And even after he didn't need to come into the office anymore, no one needed to be looking over his shoulder. He still came in because it was fun. And so that that's saying something. So uh, so anyway, we, so we had him, and then uh, the only then we're looking for guys, and and nobody, you know, everybody's busy or, or they're they're too expensive or something. But what, what happened was we started finding guys that no one else wanted. Like Stan Drake, you tell me nobody yes. wanted Stan Drake, yes, right. but he couldn't get work. And and uh, John Dixon, my God, John mm -hmm. Dixon, he was Worked like on Eternal Warrior. Yeah, yeah. And he was like mm -hmm. sort of Australia's answer to Stan Drake. As a matter of fact, Stan was his hero. Um, and uh, uh, so I mean, we started getting these these old guys. We, we were like the Oakland Raiders. We got all these people <laughs> that no one else wanted, you know. And um, so we're we're you know getting guys. And of course, Steve Ditko. Who turned out to do some really great work for us, and then uh, 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 who else? Ernie Cologne. Mm -hmm. You know, all these guys, tremendous artists that couldn't get work elsewhere. So we had like the, the, the Over the Hill Gang, and uh, and then the Young Kids, and it worked out pretty well. You know, so I mean, we weren't gonna, you know, we could we couldn't um, be as glitzy as uh, Jim Lee, but. You told good stories, that Told way. good really stories. Good stories. Told them well. You know, we put together a crew one way or another, and and uh, uh, Ralph Reese showed up. Uh, you know, we had all these guys. Yeah, he worked on EXO. Uh, and he worked on uh, he worked with Ditko on Magnus. Yes, and, that's uh, right. He did. Hi, everyone. Just want to take a quick break and remind you, if you like what you're hearing so far, this interview with Jim Shooter, please rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Your reviews are greatly appreciated. And don't miss a single episode. You never know who's going to be on next. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and on SoundCloud. So don't miss the episodes. They're free. And now back to the interview with Jim Shooter at Heroes Comic Con 2017. I was preaching my storytelling story first. Let's make... Everyone else is doing flashy pictures and very thin stories. Yes. And I said, well, what about if we do, you know, what, what do we have to fight with? We can fight back with story. We can outstory these guys. And uh, we just outwork them, you know, and uh, just, you know, uh, try to make it interesting stories and to do what Stan did back, back in the 60s. Stan just, you know, he just outworked them. He, uh, he, he made good stories. A lot, a lot of content, and uh, people don't realize this. They think they, they hear names like Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko, yeah. and, and they think, oh, stand all these great artists. Yeah, but you know, those guys couldn't get work at DC. They were considered third string. They're really considered yes. like, eh, nobody wants. Nobody to believe now, but yeah, but yeah. I mean, yeah, but you know, but, but but what they did was they brilliantly told great stories, and uh, and guess what? They became first string pretty damn quick. So, so, but it was the, so he had a kind of the same situation as me. He's working with quote third string artists who turn out to be great, like like you know, of course, Stan Drake and John Dixon and all, all the guys I had. Um, but uh, uh, you know, it was uh, that we figured we're just going to do better stories and tell them well and, and and have these guys who are, deserve far more credit than they're given, you know, work on them and. Uh, and it worked out. 
It worked out well. We did some great stuff. And all the stories were great, and I loved them, but one of my favorites, and this is like the perfect match of everyone, just in terms of talent and story, was the Solar Origin yeah. and um, the Unity book. Right. You're writing it, Barry Winter Smith drawing it, Bob Layton inking it, and that to me is like a piece de resistance. It was the greatest story I'd ever read. Uh, oh, thanks a lot. In terms That's of content nice. and artwork, it was just the beautiful marriage of the written word and the illustrated. But that's what we were going for. We were trying to like do, do visual, verbal stories, and and uh, and care about them, and make them make them work, and keep the continuity tight, because nobody else was doing that. We were the only ones doing what I called lockstep continuity. Very tight. Every yes. book had uh, every every time you change scenes, there was a time and date stamp. And if something blew up in, in Solar, Man of the Atom, the kids in Harbinger read about it in the paper the next day. You know? And also, uh, for the first time in comic, regular mainstream comics that I'm aware of, we did what, what I call Gasoline Alley uh, uh, progression. I don't know if you remember the newspaper strip, Gasoline Alley? I've heard, yeah. Okay. Gasoline Alley, every time a year passed, in, in, real, in reality, a year passed, for the characters, characters in Gasoline Alley. And I said, that's what we're going to do. No one else is doing it. No, I don't think anyone else has ever done it. So that's our plan. And we were doing that. And that's why we were able to put time and dates on everything. And uh, uh, try to keep it all uh, you know, locked together. Uh, so, so I, I mean, I used every unique thing I could think of to, to try to make us different and, you know, and good. And... Um, uh, so, uh, and, you know, people liked it. Something else you did, without fanfare, was introduce new characters very subtly in other books. Oh, like, yes. Like Rye. Yeah. Um, you know, the Eternal Warrior. It just, there wasn't any big, mere issue. It was just, if you missed it, you missed out, man. You got well, to find I, that I wanted to create a situation where you got so involved in the universe that you didn't dare look away. You know, you wanted to see what was going on. And my big plan, my biggest evil plan, was uh, uh, was Shadow Man. Because in Unity, mm. you find out that a person from the future tells Shadow Man, you're going to die in 1999. And, uh, you know, what's he going to do about it? Not much. So, so anyway, uh, and we, you know, we plan to keep publishing these books. And people said to me, you know, that's not that far away, Jim. What if this is like a huge hit? You know, and you've promised you're going to kill the character. And I said, for the first time in comic book history, series canceled due to death of hero. Okay, we're going to kill it. And they said, well, how can you do that? I said, look, here's the deal. Other companies, they get a hit. And they're, they're, I don't think they know how to do it again. It's like, it, it, it seems like they act like every hit they get is a miracle. And they better hold on to it because, you know, God who knows when it'll come around again. I said, we can do it again. And if we do that, if we actually, let's say it's selling half a million copies, and then we kill them, and the series is canceled due to death of hero, who would dare look away ever again? And also, I mean, it would be like uh, such a phenomenon in comics, you know? And like I said, and then we'll do something else. And it would be just as good. So, so anyway, we, we, we felt like we, had a handle on it. We knew what we were doing. We had old pros. 
and young kids who are QBs who listen to the little pros. And uh, Stan wrote this. It's Eric Larson's very first published work. I know. And it has a script by Stan Lee. That, that, that's going something. Man. First time I met Stan, I had him sign. I love that comic so much. Yeah, I wrote the plot. But these guys, Stan and uh, Eric, they, but it was just, can you imagine your first comic story is written by Stan Lee? The first one you draw is written by Stan Lee. We're talking about the Mighty Thor number 385. Thank you. That means a lot to me to have that. Okay. Thanks. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. Have a good weekend. You will. Have a good show. Anyway. We flipped past what if number three, too. Yeah. What if number three, uh, this, uh, Roy was uh, Roy was the editor. He created this book, and and he wanted to run it, and that was fine. He was the writer editor, so he was in charge of this book, really. And I, I guess I was the editor. Yeah, I was the editor in chief. I think. Anyway, Roy called me up, and uh, even if, if it was before I was editor in chief, it was anyway, like seventy seven that this came out. I think. Yeah, all right. Then it was just before. Just before, yeah. So, so uh, he he called me up and he said, uh, he said, I'm looking for somebody to write an issue of What If, because I, you know he needed some help. Um, and I said, you know, I, I I don't even really like the concept <laughs> of, of of What If. I'm not. It's not my favorite. You know, uh, I think we should be doing stories that aren't What Ifs. We should be doing regular stories. He said, oh, you know, come on, help me out, I can't get anybody. He must not have been able to get anybody if he wanted me. You know, he bullied me into it. And <laughs> and so I started writing it. Well, then it just, I, it turned out by luck in the draw. Gil Kane was going to do the pencil, and Klaus Janssen was going to do the ink. Boy, did they kill it. I mean, it was great. And so all of a sudden, this went from, oh, I don't want to do this, to, wow, I'm glad I'm doing this. And uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, kind of proud of it. And uh, Roy liked it, I think. And uh, you know, I, a lot of people did. I get, I get the, that to sign a lot. And uh, you know, it just worked out really well. And considering it started out that I, you know, it's like I didn't really want to do it, and then it became one of my favorite things I ever did. Is uh, P.S. Thank you. P.S. If if I'm doing something. Even if it's not my favorite, I give it the best I can. I always do the best That's I can. That's thing to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I try my best on... I did a comic book for Kraft General Foods, Cheezosaurus Rex. My whole life was not leading up to doing Cheezosaurus Rex. But I poured my heart into that. And it's, it, I think it's fun stuff. I think it's good stuff. Anyway, that's my point. I mean, so even even though that didn't uh, wasn't you know it didn't start out being like my, my my favorite thing, it, it turned into one of my favorite things. And that was just before you became editor. And I'm wondering, editor chief, I should yeah. say, what was it like when you found out that you were going to be editor in chief of Marvel Comics? Huh. Well, I've been the associate editor for three different editors in chiefs. So, I mean, in other words. When, the, uh, when, when Marv was on his way out, uh, and I was the second in command, I was the heir apparent, you might say, they just passed right over me. And uh, then when uh, Marv was replaced by Jerry Conway, he only lasted about three weeks, and uh, then he left, and then they hired Archie, they passed over me again. So, but each of these guys kept me on as his assistant, as, as his number two, I was Mr. Spock. <laughs> and um, uh, so, so that was good. And you know, I mean, you can't really complain about being a, 
uh, you know, have with Archie being your boss, or you know, or, you know, Jerry taught me in three weeks. He taught me some stuff. Um, so, uh, so I, uh, you know, I'm going along, and I thought that was going to be the way it was. Uh, then uh, Archie, uh, for a lot of reasons, Archie was going to leave, and uh, so that's a long story. But uh, so I, uh, and, I, and during that time, Stan had gotten to know me. I mean, uh, he, uh, Stan got to know me, and he didn't really run the comics. He really didn't. He wasn't even on the organizational chart. His job was to be Stan. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he didn't have any like you know day-to-day -day duties or anything like nothing like that. So uh, anyway, but but he was also the guy that obviously had the, the the ear of the president of the company. So if Stan said, "Hey, you should hire this guy." You know, they, the president's name. His name was, was Jim. Well, you know, Stan. As I always say, if Stan told me to uh, join the Boy Scouts, look for me out in the woods rubbing sticks together, man. Um, but at any rate, I, so the, the, the president of the company was actually the one who hired me. I reported to the president uh, directly. Um, but uh, but Stan, I'd worked with him on the newspaper, the Spider-Man syndicated strip. He got to know me. I guess he thought, you know, recommending me would be a good idea. So he did. And I got, I took the job. And I took it on the condition that I would be allowed to change things. Because I said, you know, the, the way things we're doing now is, is just terrible. I want to start paying royalties. I want to do this. I want to do that. And the president was pretty new, too. And I said, well, I, I want to stay, start paying royalties. He said to me, you mean we don't? <laughs> so I didn't have to fight too hard for that. But... Uh, but at any rate, because uh, he came from real-world publishing, where everybody pays royalties. So, so all right. So, uh, so I took the job. Now I had been fairly outspoken as an associate editor about things like I didn't like the concept of writer editors. I don't think anybody can really edit their own stuff. When I wrote stuff, I always had somebody be the editor, and I let them be the editor. They picked the artists. They picked the you know. It, it was they did the job just like any other editor, and, and I respected their comments. Mostly, uh, they, they liked what I wrote, so it was never any problem. But at any rate, um, uh, so I've been outspoken about that and some other things, uh, and things being late and you know, general chaos, and, and uh, you know, and also the quality of the work. You know, I felt that people were just churning it out. Some of them. Well, and there were a lot of filling issues too, and the deadline. Yeah, wasn't exactly. Everything was behind, and I felt that some people were just not really pouring their hearts into it. Let's say, you know, just just kind of. Uh, cash in the paychecks, you know. So I, uh, I'd been outspoken about that. So okay. So at the Christmas party in 1977, it was an impromptu Christmas. Marvel didn't have a Christmas party, so a bunch of people, just the bullpen guys and me, uh, we uh, we had a Christmas party at this little joint around the corner, and um, we invited Stan. But Stan uh, and his wife Joan, they had another commitment. Uh, he said, oh, I wish I could be with you guys, and I, he meant it, he did, because it were more fun. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, so the evening's going on, and then Stan and uh, uh, Joan came in, and I don't know, for some reason Stan decided that would be a great time to tell everybody that Archie was leaving and I was going to take over on the first working day of January as editor-in-chief. So he announces that, dead silence. The whole room is dead silent, and because uh, they're all, you know, like, what's he gonna do? Oh my God, you know, he's, he's you know, he's uh, he's gonna be Mussolini. He's gonna be horrible. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, the older guys came over. Hey, congratulations, Danny Crespi, John Tartag, all the all the old pros came over and said nice things. But there was a lot of fear and loathing in that room. <laughs> and, and so, anyway, I go home that night, and at, at 7 a.m. the next morning, uh, the phone rings, and it's Marv Wolfman. He doesn't even say hello. He says, "What are you going to do?" Because he was a writer editor, and he thought I was, you know. And I said, I'm going to sleep for another hour, you know. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway, uh, you know, people were not thrilled. They were a little, you know, uh, worried. And I said, look, I'm not going to, you know, become a, a big meanie and everything. I'm going to try to make things better for everybody. But in order to make things better, we have to get on time. We have to, you know, everybody has to be doing good work. Everybody, you know, we have to, uh, we, we got to make this a professional company. And uh, and so I mean I started out and then I had all kinds of problems because the copyright law changed and nobody like had done anything about it so I'm stuck with all the the fallout from that and then my good friend always well, even throughout this period my good friend Neil Adams decides this is a great time to start a union and go on strike against Marvel and I kept telling him Neil they're just going to close it. If you, you know, if you do that, they'll close it. It's going to go all reprint or something. You're not going to help anybody. So, but he felt, you know, that it was the right thing. Meanwhile, all through this, where I'm management and he's representing labor, he's invited me to his parties and we're hanging out. You know, I mean, it wasn't like it was... It wasn't animosity. No, it was just, he was trying to help people from the outside and I was trying to help them from the inside. So we got along fine, just, you know... I kept saying, you're making it harder for me. And he said, well, no, I think it'll put pressure on them. Anyway, just give me a chance, you know? Anyway, so it was a, it was a tough time, but we started getting things done. And uh, the first thing I did was try to get books on time. I had books on my desk, hadn't gone to the separator yet, that were technically six months late. Six months late. And, and, uh, we were supposed to, my first month was January 1978. We were supposed to ship 45 color comics. We shipped 26. Does that tell you how bad it was? And uh, so so anyway, uh, my first order of business was to get things on time. It took me until April, till we were shipping the correct number of books. By the end of that year, um, I got a letter from Bob Craig who ran World Color Press, the printer, Bob Craig, saying congratulations for the first time in its history from 1939. Marvel Comics is on time. <laughs> so that was good. And then once we're on time, it's a lot easier than to work on quality and so forth. And I, I started getting good people like Larry Hong and Louise Simonson and, and uh, Al Milgram and, and you know other really, really talented people. And, so that made the battle easier because it wasn't just you know me. It was it was a lot of us who felt the same way, trying to you know uh, improve the the system there, and uh, we did. And oh, strangely, strangely, look what happens. Sales get better, and then I have more money to play with, and then we do more programs, and we get more people. We introduced. I said I can't change work for hire. I cannot change that. They won't let me. There's no way. You're not going to ever own a Spider-Man story. You know, Marvel's going to own it. However, it doesn't have to be unfair. It can be fair work for hire. So I just started introducing all these programs and incentives. 
basically the president of the company who never opened a comic book in his life. He said, I don't care what you do as long as it's either self-liquidating or doesn't cost too much or makes money. Okay? It's pretty free hand. So I introduced all these programs. Like, the first one was a continuity bonus. You do so many issues in a row, you get a bonus. Just to keep people on the same book. Yeah. And uh, it was a nice bonus, too. I said, well, if it's work for hire, we should provide all materials. Marvel always used to provide the paper. The only reason being that they were afraid that artists would try to save money and buy crappy paper. So, so uh, Marvel provided the paper, and uh, and that's all. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa! If it's work for hire, you know, you can't expect the workers to bring the leather to the shoe factory and then claim that you own the shoes. You know, it, it just doesn't let them work. So we have to provide everything. And so I had a policy where we would provide. Uh, Pens, pencils, ink, uh, whiteout, uh, uh, anything, any art supplies you would need. And uh, if you ever tried to buy a Windsor Newton brush, you better bring a couple hundred bucks with you. So it was a significant benefit. And uh, and I also said, if you're if you're sending stuff to Marvel, I'll pay your postage. If you're if you're if you're uh, uh, on the phone doing business with Marvel, I'll pay your phone bill. If you're if I ask you to come into the office, I'll pay your train fare. You know, and so things got better for guys. And then after a while, we introduced the royalty program. So now guys whose books sell well uh, get a royalty check every month, you know? And some of those, I remember handing John Byrne a $30,000 check for one issue of one comic. And that wasn't the biggest one he ever got. I just said, all right, John, here's a check for 30 grand. One issue of one comic for which he had been well paid up front, you know? And so it was, uh, it was really good for everybody, you know? It was really good. And, and so things are getting better. And of course, word gets out. Hey, you can make money at Marvel. So then more guys show up. The guys who left us came back. Uh, Starling came back. Wrightson came back. Eventually Engelhardt. Even Roy, who got mad at me and left, he came back. And, uh, you know, and, you know I, I think Roy, having had the job, he had a little bit of sympathy for, you know, what I was going through. And, I guess, you know, he cut me some slack. But, uh, uh, you know, we had, all of a sudden, we have all the great guys in comics looking around. It's like everywhere you look, there's a genius. There's Sinkevich. There's, you know, uh, Goodwin, Hama, Simonson, uh, both of them. Uh, you know, we had uh, such good people. And uh, and, it, and it, the more better, the better people we got, the better the books were, the more they sold, and the more money we had to try to, you know. Well, then... Here, a little, little sidebar here. At the same time, okay, we're competing with DC Comics, and uh, uh, DC, uh, uh, well, they're fighting back. <laughs> they're trying to, to do stuff. And uh, so, all of a sudden, they're doing better stuff. And there's Watchmen, and there's, you know, the, they, they, they talk uh, Frank into coming over there and doing some stuff, and Frank Miller. And, uh, you know, so all of a sudden, the whole industry is, like, kind of getting... You know, better. So, I mean, it started out like, uh, you know, like uh, everybody was afraid of me and hated me. And by the time a couple years had gone by, uh, people were making a lot of money, things were good. Uh, and so uh, I think they kind of changed their opinion a little bit. Don't worry, they got back to hating me later. <laughs> but uh, uh, towards the end of the time, what, the, what went wrong was uh, Marvel was being sold. Um, I guess I mentioned that the board of directors took it private and they tried to sell it to cash in 
on our success. The success that we, me and all the other creative guys had built. So now these guys that own it say, hey, we're gonna sell it and cash in. And that's when things started going downhill because uh, if you're trying to sell a company, you're not interested in investment. You're, you're actually only interested in how many pennies are on the bottom line. Because every penny that's on the bottom line is it, it's companies are sold for a multiple of their earnings. So if you can uh, save a penny and put it on the bottom line, you might get 20 pennies back when you sell the, sell the company. So they're going around counting paper clips, make sure nobody threw away a paper clip. Uh, they, they, they cashed out the, 40, the, the pension plan, they, they took away the 401k, they, they eviscerated our, our health care program, they, they did, just, just de destroyed us and, and uh, people became unhappy and a lot of it was blamed on me because what am I going to do? If I say, upstairs management is screwing you, well then they quit and they go to DC and it's Jim Shooter driving talent away. I can't win, you know. I, uh, uh, you know Toward the end there, it got kind of ugly, but but I did the best I could. I always did the best I could. You know, the whole time I've been talking, you've been signing, and I'm just surprised that there aren't more people in demand of your work, because you still have huge popularity, and you were also signing some of the work you did for Dark Horse while you were sitting here. Yeah. To, and this is no lie, when I saw that you were going to be bringing back some of the bulky characters, yeah. uh, you know, Solar, I mean, I was Black. like, Oh. All right. I was doing a fist pump when I saw that you were bringing Everything back Solar. So, um, well, I think the thing is, since I have, haven't done any mainstream recently, uh, I think that, um, uh, yeah, I haven't done a lot of recently, and so I think people forget about you. You know, not the not the people who've been around for a while. You yeah. know, guys who have collected stuff when I was doing it. They they. You know they know I am, but but uh, some people don't, and uh, it's whatever. I mean, I, I'm I I can live with it. It's uh, however I am doing something with Image that's coming out. I'm gonna say end of the year, early next year. Okay. Uh, a bunch of guys made a deal with Image, good guys, and uh, called me up, and they wanted two things from me. They wanted me to. Not necessarily be the editor, but they wanted me to let, let's let's call me the coach. They wanted me to like help them with stuff, and uh, and they also wanted me to write four stories for them as as part of this project, which involves another writer. He's kind of the the main writer, and he he was doing part of it, and they wanted me to do like a companion piece with it, and uh, and then they they were gonna we're gonna merge it at the end. I don't know who's gonna write the end story, maybe me, but. Um, but anyway, so that sounded like fun, and so I've, I've been working on that, and uh, they've got some great artists doing this work. Um, they asked me, you know, do, did I think I could get Neil Adams to do one of my stories? Yes, yes. I, so I, I was hoping the same thing, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. So I asked him. I saw him. I ran into him last week, and I said, you know, how would you like to do a story with me? He said, done. We're doing it. I mean, you did, we didn't talk money or anything. It's mm -hmm. just he's going to do it. I think uh, you know if I, uh, uh, I think he'd probably do it for free. You know, I mean, we we worked together for years and years yes. and years. I did sketches, he did the covers, um, and uh, so I think it, you know, for the fun of it. Of course, nobody's going to ask him to work for free. But I'm saying, is, you know, that that, that he's. Uh, 
He's into it. Yeah. You know, and that's good. I also ran into Jim Steranko last weekend, and, you know, I said, you know, got this thing. He said, uh, he's, I'll do anything he wants. So yeah, maybe he'll do something. I no, don't have a commitment from him yet. I mean, I mean, I didn't discuss it with him. I just, he just sort of a general, if you need me, I'm there kind of okay. thing. So, you know, I mean, it might be a lot of fun, and it might be some, like, really big-name guys and some old guys you don't see stuff from anymore that, uh, that do this. And also, I'm kind of excited. Like, I haven't done any... I do, do a lot of little indie stuff, you know, for free, because they don't have any money. I just, just for fun and to keep my hand in. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that's okay, but it's, this is going to be the first mainstream I've had for a long time. Uh, other than that, I've been doing like some commercial stuff that nobody ever sees, you know, stuff like that. You know, I mean, I, I one of my examples of my my little show and tell book over there is that old comic book I did for Cheezosaurus Rex. Yes, that's old, but that's the kind of thing I've been doing, and uh, I threw I threw that in there because I like it. Well, awesome, Jim. Thank you so much for your time and pleasure. for the wonderful news about seeing some more from you in the near future. Yeah, I, I like I say, it's, it's, uh, I feel like I'm back in the saddle again, you know, because I'm working on this image thing. And so far, it's been a lot of fun. It's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Jim, so much. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes my interview with Jim Shooter at Heroes Con. That was a real treat for me to have a chance to sit next to Jim Shooter for that entire interview. Just a never-ending, continuous line of fans coming by with their books to be signed. It was wonderful to see that, and he deserves it. Uh, he's put a lot into the comic industry, and that little tease that he'll be coming back, doing some work through Image. Details to follow. We don't know exactly what's happening yet, but we know he is speaking to the folks at Image. There is a project he's working on, and it would be great if it all did come to pass that he could do something with Neil Adams and Jim Starenko. But that's all just kind of been a handshake, not even a handshake, just kind of a conversation right now. But it's a possibility, and it is something I have thought about and dreamed about. And I'll be there the day they go on sale. You better believe it. I'll be the first person in line to get them. Well, I hope you did enjoy the interview. I hope I can catch up with Jim Shooter again in the future and continuing our conversation, because we haven't even touched upon Defiant Broadway Comics and uh, his little stint there over at Dark Horse Comics working on the Gold Key characters. So maybe someday I can do another episode with him. Who's coming up next? Well, I'm going to have some spotlights on other publishers. I've been doing spotlights on Insane Comics, and I have one more coming up this week. But I also have other publishers coming up, smaller independent publishers that I'll be focusing the spotlight on. So I'll be talking to some of those writers and creators. But you can find out who by following me on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And of course, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, so you don't miss a single episode. And they are free, as I often say. I do not have a Patreon. There's nothing wrong with having a Patreon. Who knows, maybe someday I will, but this is always going to be free. And right now, the best thing you can do is just subscribe. Okay, well that is it. I'm out of here, back with the fam, and looking forward to the next episode. So, for Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Mm-hmm.